For those of you who are visiting us over the last couple of months, we've been uh, retelling, reflecting on the story of Paul. And today we find ourselves in Europe, and in particular in Philippi and Thessalonica, where we find Paul and Silas engaged in a ministry of, of evangelism and social disruption, announcing and proclaiming to anyone who would listen that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the world's true king. So let's start uh, here in, in Philippi. Uh, Tim will know from his map that, that Philippi is in the northwest of what, it, what is now Greece. It was probably best known in, in those days as the location of a major battle in 42 BC, where Mark Antony and Octavian Caesar defeated Brutus and Cassius, names we kind of might vaguely remember from history lessons or, or whatever. And following that, that victory, Ro uh, Philippi was established as a Roman colony, but also as a kind of retirement city for, for veteran soldiers. Uh, you know, these days we have, we have retirement homes. This was a kind of whole city where there were areas that were set aside for, for Roman soldiers uh, who'd done their bit to, to, to retire into. And by Paul's time, it had also become an important centre for traders, uh, going between Rome and Istanbul, or, or Byzantium, as it was, it was then known. And one of the differences between Philippi and, and many of the other places that Paul has already visited is, is that the Jewish community was, was very small. So small, in fact, that there was no synagogue, just a place of prayer, maybe a room even, uh, where, where, where the Jewish believers could, could meet together and encourage each other, and, and pray together. And as usual, that is where Paul begins. And to start, things, things, to start with, things are very encouraging. Uh, before, we, before our reading, we hear how Paul's message was well received by the Jewish community, and how Lydia, a, a successful businesswoman, was converted. She's baptized, and she invites Paul and his whole party to stay with her. As long, as long as they're in the city. But then things begin to get tricky. On the way to the place of prayer, Paul and his party are accosted by a slave. A woman who has been possessed by some kind of spirit that enables her to, to read fortunes. And to earn a good fortune for her owners. You see, there are always some who will see the economic opportunity in the suffering of others. Who will turn another's pain or vulnerability into their own profit. It was true then and it's sadly still true today. And this poor woman latches onto Paul and his party and begins to follow them around, announcing loudly as they go, telling all and all and sundry, that these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. It's fair to say that in a, in a city like Philippi, there would have been this whole collection of, of pagan gods and goddesses that people worshipped. People were spoilt for choice, if you like. Choose your God. Choose your, your deity. Almost like the supermarkets where this beans, baked beans, where there's this shelf full and you can choose your particular version of, 
I'm not sure that's a very good analogy, but baked beans. <laughs> Choose your God. Uh, and, and faced with this dazzling, dazzling array, this choice, uh, many people came to believe in a single ultimate deity. A most high God, he was called. God with a capital G. I don't know what you say when someone asks you whether you believe in God. I'm often tempted to say, well, it, it depends what you mean by God. Do you mean the straw man God that Richard Dawkins puts up so that he can knock down? Do you mean some ambiguous life form or some all-powerful distant creator figure? You see, the problem with that word God is that it can mean so many things, different things to different people. I often feel that when I watch debates on the, on the telly or on the radio. How does God allow suffering? you just aware that people mean so many different things by that word, God. And that was the same with the phrase, most high God. Basically, it could mean whatever you wanted it to mean. Whatever your own conception of God, that's, that's the kind of label you put on it. I mean, what happens next? Uh, Paul turns to the girl and in the name of Jesus, commands the spirit to leave her, which it did there and then. And the girl is, is set free. And Paul invokes the name of Jesus. You see, the Christian God is always the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who reveals what God is like. And it is in Jesus in and whom the power of God is enacted. When Paul talks about God, he's not talking about some vague, amorphous divine power. He's always talking about the God who entered human history in Jesus Christ. The God who was crucified and risen and ascended. That, that's what Paul means by God. As Christian people, that's what we mean when we use the word God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So back to the story, the girl's owners are, I guess, understandably not happy. They've just lost their prime source of income. And so Paul and Silas are dragged into the marketplace to face the authorities. And we heard the story, Paul, Silas, I guess like Jesus before them, are stripped and humiliated and beaten and, and dumped into jail. Uh, not, not, not as a sentence, but while the magistrates decide what to do with them next. And while they, were th while they were there, this earthquake strikes. Suddenly, we read, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. If I had a bit more time, I'd like to explore the connections between that, that, that description there and, and Luke's description, uh, Matthew's description of what happened after Jesus was died and, and the resurrection where there's similar earthquakes and doors open and chains coming loose. Have a read maybe later when, uh, when you get a minute. But anyway, the jailer is terrified. Uh, 
I guess those things in and of themselves were pretty frightening. I've never been in an earthquake, but, but I imagine it's, it's pretty frightening. But for, for the jailer, it was worse. You see, he was responsible for keeping the prisoners under lock and key. And now they've escaped. And he's failed in his duty. And that would mean punishment for him, maybe torture, maybe death for him for letting these prisoners go for failing and so he decides to take his own life he draws his sword and then he hears a voice Paul's voice don't harm yourself Paul cries we're still here I don't know about you but I wouldn't have still been there if the doors had been opened in that manner I would have legged it as fast as my little legs would carry me I've, you know, I was quite quick in my youth. Uh, yeah, I was quite speedy, certainly over a short distance. Uh, I've got too much spare timber these days. So, uh, but then I'd have been off, full pelt down the road. Uh, but I guess Paul, I don't know, knowing, I guess, what the jailer's fate would have been if they'd fled into the night, Paul instead stayed put. Paul may be guessed sense that God was up to something here. And of course, the jailer all in a tizzy, desperately trying to process what on earth is going on here, what on earth just happened, rushes in. What must I do to be saved, he says to Paul, to Silas. What must I do to be saved? And we're going to return to that question to the jailer in, in a few moments, uh, but for now, let's, let's follow Paul further on. He's on his way ultimately to Corinth via Athens. And, and between Philippi and, and Athens is, is the city of Thessalonica, a bit further around in Greece. Uh, and in Thessalonica, we have a very similar story to Philippi. The preaching of Paul and Silas is soon interrupted as they are rounded up by another angry mob and dragged before the powers that be locally, or at least some of their followers are, dragged before the powers that be locally. I guess for that to happen once is unfortunate. Maybe if that begins to happen regularly, there's a bit of a pattern going on there. And this is the charge. These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, another lord, one called Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it, that the early church was known for turning the world upside down and for claiming that there is another king, another emperor, maybe. As I mentioned earlier, the world at this time was awash with gods. But perhaps the dominant cult was the one that venerated the emperor. This is Caesar Augustus, but whichever of the Caesars was in power at the time. And there were all sorts of titles that went with it, titles that they gave to Caesar. He was called the Son of God. He was called the King of Kings. He was called the Prince of Peace. He was called Lord of All. He was called the Saviour of the world. Anyone recognize any of those titles? They belong to Caesar first and foremost. 
Apparently there was even a saying in this period which said something like this, there is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved than that of Caesar. It's interesting that it wasn't Caesar who borrowed these terms from the Christians. It was the Christians who borrowed or took these terms loaded as they were with political meaning but which Paul and the other Christians applied them to Jesus. But it wasn't just titles. Caesar, Augustus, all the Caesars that followed in his stead believed that they were on a divine mission. They believed that they were sent by the gods to earth to bring about a universal reign of peace and prosperity. The Pax Romana, they called it the Peace of Rome. Rome, as, as you probably aware, was, was the world's, I guess, the only superpower. The world's superpower at that time, the dominant force. With all the military, latest military hardware. With all the wealth. And they believed that as they went around the world, as they conquered the world, as they enforced the peace of Rome, that they were building a new and a better world, a universal peace of course, it was a rule and a reign built on brute force, on power, on might, on force, on coercion. It was achieved by destroying your enemies and opponents and subjugating them and forcing them to do things your way. And of course, to pay healthy taxes in the process. And so here is Paul saying there is another king, another emperor. And at the heart of the good news that Paul tells is this claim that Jesus is the world's true king, the world's true emperor, whose kingship is revealed not in conquest, not in brute force, but in service, in sacrifice. In suffering and supremely in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is a different kind of king, a different kind of emperor. And he invites those who follow him to a different way of being, a new way of living, to a different way of being human, someone said to a different kind of kingdom. Let's return to a moment for that, to that jailer's question that we, we heard earlier. What must I do to be saved? Tom Wright, when he talks about this incident, I love the way he puts it, he, he notes how that translation of the Greek, what must I do to be saved? When we hear it, uh, going back to... Tim's then and now, when we, when we hear it, it makes, him, makes the jailer sound like a 17th century Puritan, he says, anxious about how to, get he, how to get to heaven. When the real force of the jailer's words was something much more along the line of, will you tell me how I can get out of this mess? It's another fine mess you've got me into. How do I get out of this? Uh, the idea that salvation means that one's soul somehow escapes this wicked world and goes to heaven was present in some first century philosophies. But 
but more common was the well the idea firstly the idea that salvation was that that Caesar offered to those who gave allegiance to his kingdom. It was a salvation offered at the end of a sword, as I've said. It was a salvation that those that was offered to those who were on the side of the biggest and the strongest and the most powerful. Salvation that came with the sword. But the most common meaning of that word salvation was perhaps the most simple. It's the cry of a drowning man. We heard it in the Psalms. Save me. Get me out of here. The man hanging on a rooftop. Help. Help. Get me down from here. And the jailer simply wanted Paul and Silas to, to get him out of the mess he was in. He wanted the nightmare to end. He wanted to avoid any trouble. Save me, it's the cry that's on our lips. Faced with a virus that we can't control and which leaves destruction in its wake. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul replies. It's that word pistis that we, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Belief as in trust. Belief as in loyalty. Belief as in giving your allegiance to Jesus. In the same way that a Roman citizen would give their allegiance to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Who is king? Jesus is, therefore give him your allegiance. Live for him and you will be saved. And we're told that the jailer believes and that salvation comes to this house. And is celebrated as this so frequently in the Gospels with food and with drink as we have celebrated this morning salvation in bread and wine. A sign, a foretaste of that heavenly banquet. I don't know about you, but as I see the brokenness of the world all around me, I know that that is true of my own soul as well. I know that like the world, I need help. I need saving. I need rescuing. I need rescuing from my sins, from my mistakes, from my pride, from my indifference to the suffering of the world all around me, from my cynicism, from my despair. It's been said many times before, but the awesome truth is that God loves each one of us as we are but it also loves each one of us way too much to allow us to stay as we are. The cross, the resurrection show us that God hasn't given up on the world and God hasn't given up on you and me either. God is committed to remaking and to restoring this world, to defeating sin and death. In the world, in my life and in your life, to rescuing us, to saving us, not by taking us out of the world, but by empowering us to live differently in the world, even when it feels like we're hanging on like our fingertips. And I know that that's how some of us feel this morning, feel like we're hanging on. Jesus doesn't take us out of the world, but he enables us to live for him in the world. And Tim and Josh have been spelling out already some of what that looks like. Jesus is Lord, King, Emperor. 
whichever term you prefer. And he invites us, you and me, to give our allegiance to him. To become part of his underground revolution. To participate in the way that he is turning the world upside down. By our faithful witness. Jesus is Lord and he invites you to give your loyalty to him. To embrace a life of service. Of loving God and loving others. Of feeding the hungry and standing with the downtrodden. And freeing the enslaved. And embracing the lonely. And simply practicing kindness. That is where true fulfillment As Joshua said, that is where true life is found, in God's upside-down kingdom. You see, there is another king, another Lord, one called Jesus. And he invites us to become part of his kingdom and to play our part in turning the world upside-down. Or perhaps better, to turn the world right-side-up. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, in this time of uncertainty, in this season, this new season of lockdown, in this time when we feel under pressure, uh, when we're aware of what, what we are missing, what we are losing, Lord, we want you to save us. Uh, And Lord, we're aware when we say that, we want it all to be over. And we want it all to be finished. But I'm aware that often you save us by giving us what we need. To endure and to serve. Lord, in this time, may we be people with big hearts. Who encourage others, who serve others, who bring your your life into our neighbourhoods, into our communities, into our worlds. Lord, may in this time, may the world see something of your kingdom, something of the beauty of your reign through us, your disciples. Lord God, we, Lord Jesus, we love you. We believe in you. And once again at this time, we offer to you our allegiance. Uh, Lord, that we would serve you and serve our neighbours by your spirit on whom we depend. Amen.